Can we change the way we produce food to both meet the needs of humans whilst regenerating our soils and ecosystems? And can we do so in a way that improves the financial viability of farms? These questions are becoming increasingly urgent to answer, and we're here to investigate a promising technique called agroforestry in order to find out how it can help us with these challenges. We'll be interviewing farmers, scientists, and other experts to share with you their experiences, practical advice, and scientific research. So hello and welcome to the Regenerative Agroforestry Podcast. I'm your host, Dimitri, and today we have a bit of a special session because for once, I'm actually sitting here with a guest that we're going to have on the show, and I'm really happy to invite Mark, Mark Leiber, Mark is actually my neighbor. We live in the same little village in Portugal. So this is really, really cool. He's also a friend of mine. And um, Mark is, um, is an expert and a practitioner of syntropic agriculture. We've had 40 episodes and not one of them yet has been syntropic agriculture. So we thought that it was really about time to get, some, to get somebody on that could, that could really give us an introduction to what syntropic agriculture is. And I thought Mark was the perfect person for this. So um, without further ado, I'm going to let Mark introduce himself um, um, and tell us a bit more about his story and how he ended up here. Welcome on the show, Mark. Thank you, Dimitri, for this invitation um, and the special honor to be here uh, with all of you listeners today. Um, as Dimitri said, my name is Mark Leiber. I am uh, born in Ger- or I was born in Germany. I grew up in the United States, uh, then with 18 years old, I moved back to Germany. I, from there, I realized that I wanted to work with plants. It was when I was about 20, 21. My stepbrother had started a permaculture project in Kenya to support a local family, a small landowner. And it was a project that really touched me because my brother, he was like being really selfless and just really investing most of his money into this property, building houses, planting fruit trees, buying the land itself, buying water pumps, creating all kinds of structures for this local family to start being self-sufficient. And he started, uh, he went to Australia to do a course with Jeff Lawton in permaculture. So he started talking a lot about permaculture and he was applying all these techniques there on this property in Kenya. And uh, it moved me when he started doing this and... uh, made me want to get into the same thing because I really saw a lot of truth in the idea of not um, sending money to countries where people have a lack of yeah, food and other resources, but instead going there and helping them to sustainably look after themselves. And um, so I asked him what he thought that I could do uh, in order to help him because I wanted to get on board with this project with him. He's a golf teacher by profession, which would allow him to spend the winters traveling to Australia, to Kenya and these places. But um, so he has no like formal education in agriculture. And so he said, well, if you could study agriculture, then um, I would we would have somebody with a deeper insight into the whole uh, technicalities of the of the um yeah, projects, and we could maybe make more of these kind of projects. And so I got really excited about this idea, and um, I started trying to register for agricultural degree. And it turned out to be super difficult because um, 
my uh, diploma from the US was not sufficient to enroll in university in Europe. I probably would also not gotten in university in the US because I never done an SAT and you know I, <laughs> I had kind of been a bit careless in my high school years <laughs> about being in school and so you know like I then had these consequences that I actually had a very difficult time getting into a school and um well I found this one school in the Netherlands and it seemed really appealing and it was kind of I it just somehow happened that uh it was a funny story but in the end they uh, admitted me into the study program and <laughs> i mean from there a lot of really beautiful things came um the study itself i would say was not really what uh affected me so like of course i had uh, imprint on me because um we learned a lot about the technicalities of how plants work the morphology the processes on a cell level and um, this kind of stuff is really interesting genetics uh, breeding all this kind of stuff we learned about we also had some class about economics and marketing classes but um, in general it was very conventional you know it was uh, mainly horticulture so greenhouse uh, um, how's it called ornamental plant growing but also like tomatoes and cucumbers and then a bit of like uh, arable land Uh, agriculture like but really limited like potatoes corn and almost already stopped there like mm. wheat or something like this was hardly ever addressed okay. <laughs> so it was just like really like corn potatoes and greenhouses like okay. really like the dutch kind of thing you know okay <laughs> um you know we had the good thing about the studies was that It had attracted quite an international group of people with different backgrounds and different uh, fields of interest And we also had a lot of freedom to, um, how does it say, like, um, constru like um, construct the studies as we saw fit to ourselves and our interests. So we had like two years of actual uh, theoretical studies. And then the third and the fourth year, you're pretty much free to do whatever you saw fit. You know, you had to meet like certain requirements and stay within the structure of the whole um expectations but uh, there was like if you knew how to operate within that um, and especially if you had like a capacity of writing emotionally profound and how's it called like uh, messages to the uh, board member like the directory of the boards you know you could get like special requests through to make like mm -hmm. things that were maybe not like entirely foreseen but that you like You know, if you were, like, really, like, determined and you could express that in some kind of way, then you could get away with doing some quite cool stuff. And um, so, you know, I in the first study year, it was really when the first moments when I really started working with trees. Um, I did an internship in an organic tree nursery, Flores Natuurlijke Bome in Den Dunge, the Netherlands. And um, so Flores, he has a really interesting assortment of all kinds of fruit varieties, um, mainly focusing, at the time he was mainly focusing on uh, heritage, apple, pear, cherry, plum, and so on and so forth varieties. And um, I learned a number of things there. First of all, like I planted my first trees in my life there. Mm. Then, um, you know, like how to measure a row, how to, you know, prepare a soil, how to dig, how to 
um, graft, how to prune. He taught me how to use chainsaws. He taught me how to use a tractor. He taught me how to climb trees with the harness, how to prune safely because he was also doing tree maintenance, mm. uh, how to use wood chippers. And so like the whole package, like everything, like he gave me like pretty much like the crash course of everything. Okay. Nice. <laughs> it was a really practical approach and like really like self-learning approach. And I think like being with Flores to me was like the perfect preparation for going to Ernst mm. because Flores, like the first time he ever let me use a chainsaw, I think I was wearing shorts and just a normal t-shirt. It was summer. Never used a chainsaw in my life. <laughs> and he just like shows me how to turn it on. And he's like, okay, this is how you turn it on. Two more important things. This is how you put the brake. This is how you turn it off. Make sure you have like a good position with your feet, like that you're standing strong and just have fun. And he leaves. <laughs> and he leaves me there with the chainsaw by myself. And like these kind of situations would happen like very regularly where... I remember where uh, I was really high up in an oak tree. I was like 15 meters high up in an oak tree that we were pruning. He had already finished his tree, which was next to mine. Yeah. And it was the first time that I was kind of like doing this like seriously. And uh, so I was pruning this tree. And um, I did like two or three mistakes. I broke the window of the client's house. <laughs> <laughs> Which was not like so dramatic as it sounds now, but you know, we could fix it. But you know, there's like this element of, uh, you know, he was not always present and you had to like be able to adapt to situations and learn really fast yourself. Yeah. I think that was perfect preparation for going to Ernst Farm because... So you have to tell us a bit about who Ernst is because many okay. people will be like, Ernst, but who is Ernst? Like, what is this? <laughs> What's this Ernst guy that keeps coming up in the conversation? All right. Well, so, you know, I started having lots of questions to my teachers, especially after having done this internship um, because they're teaching us really conventional ideas and methods. And uh, they're just like, okay, we have to do more GMO, we have to focus on breeding more to make the crops more specific to threats of climate change, to water scarcity. We have to be more efficient in the use of fertilizers so we can be more sustainable in the use of them. We have to uh, dial in the use of pesticides and really target them. And I was like, guys, do you really think that this has a future? Like, I am now, I was then 22 years old, I'm now 26, and so... I told him, I was like, you know, when I'm 50 years old, I don't know if I will still be able to feed myself and a family from doing this kind of stuff or if we would be able to feed humanity, as you guys so loudly proclaim, applying these techniques. And um, my teachers, they couldn't ever answer me these questions. With a group of friends of mine, um, we started this uh, initiative, um, which like, aside from our study program, to build a food forest next to the university there was like a big food forest movement in the netherlands and uh, we kind of got inspired by that and wanted to make our own food forest next to the university looking to plant it in a more rational and economically oriented way okay um it was one of the initial ideas um and in this whole process, uh, many very special things happened. Like, uh, I remember one of those moments was when we met Mark Shepard. Mm. Uh, he had been a big inspiration at the time. And For that, you, huh? He yeah, yeah. I read his okay. book. And, you know, that was also, like, really a significant introduction to the whole subject of regenerative agriculture and agroforestry yeah. to me at the time. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, but, like, I think two weeks after Mark, we uh, got to know Mark Shepard, 
uh, we had organized this four-day visit for Ernst Götz to visit us there in the Netherlands. And like I swear, in those four days, I learned more about the things that I came to university to learn about and everything that I thought would be significant to what I wanted to achieve in agriculture in my life than I had in the previous two years of studying. And so Ernst had like very immediate and very big impact on me. And so he is the person that um, developed this whole concept of syntropic agroforestry. Um, he has been yeah, working on this, I would say, for over 50 years. I mean, he grew up doing agriculture in a smallholder family farm in Switzerland um, that was still applying very traditional methods. And he still has very deep memories of um, the crop rotations and the agroforestry systems that they had at the time. So they also had all these hedges, all these windbreaks, all these fruit trees overshadowing the uh, grain fields. And everything interconnected with the livestock, with the different crops. And so he still had like very, he still has like very, very strong memories of this that he would also share with me. Um, and you know, just very overall inspiring person. He worked in uh, breeding afterwards. And um, from what I understand, at the time when he was working in breeding, he was working on creating clover varieties that were more productive and especially that were more resistant to the, I think it was iron toxicity in the atmosphere that was produced by the um, pollution by the airplanes. So something made by airplanes that was causing clover varieties to start uh, going uh, weaker. I, I don't know if this is actually really true. This is something that a friend of mine had told me once. I'd never heard this from the mouth of Ernst, that this was the reason why he was breeding. But So he was in charge of this breeding program for clover. He went to, I think, he collected over 500 heritage clover varieties from different uh, farms in Switzerland. And these clover varieties had been bred specifically to each farm for over 500 years. So the farmers would be breeding their own clover on their farm. And he then went after this 500 year selection uh, process to over four or 500 farms, selected the most beautiful clovers and made all kinds of crosses from them. And out of it resulted a clover variety, which is actually still widely used here in Europe nowadays. Wow. Uh, so like 40 years later, it's still being like widely used. Incredible. And um, so, um, but he started asking himself if, uh, because of the nature of his work, if it would not be more intelligent to, instead of looking for varieties and genotypes that were more resistant to the mismanagement or the mistreatment that we were giving the plants, if it would not be more intelligent to create conditions in which the plants would feel well out of themselves. So he started making a lot of experiments with intercropping there in Switzerland. He had made also some experiments with uh, where he had like plants inside boxes. And he uh, would, um, like for example, he would have corn and beans and something else inside a box. And he had windows where he could take away the side of the box and look at the roots of the plants. And so, for example, he injected colorants 
into uh, one species of plant inside that box and he could see how long it would take for that colorant to appear in the root system of another species inside the same box. And so he was already working on this stuff in the 60s and 70s. <laughs> okay. Wow, phenomenal. <laughs> and, um, you know, he was then making a lot of connections with how plants work together, and he was actually seeing that he was having increases in yield when he would plant corn and uh, potatoes together, that he would harvest 30% more potatoes than in a monoculture and 30% more corn. And so he was having quite some significant results. And um, afterwards, he uh, decided to ask to um, leave his job because he wanted to commit himself full time to his research in plant consortia and agroforestry instead of continuing on the breeding. Um, he left his job and uh, unfortunately, in or, well, what does it say unfortunately? Well, he couldn't find a piece of land in Europe to work on because the prices were quite high at the time. And he moved with his family to Costa Rica and he was working there for six or seven years from what I understand in a program with uh, refugees um, where there were, I think it was Nicaraguan refugees that they were teaching sustainable agriculture. Um, please, Ernst, excuse me if I say anything that is not 100% accurate, but um, this is like how I remember. And um, he worked there for six or seven years and he started making these more like simplified agroforestry systems like alley cropping. It had like some elements of natural succession, but... Um, he realized that by just making these alley cropping systems or um, that by, you know, they were quite complex. They had uh, support species, they had fruit trees, and then they had uh, grain and tuber crops. So corn, beans, manioc or cassava in the in-between rows. They had bananas and other fruit trees and then uh, support species like, um, yeah, just trees for growing good foliage, making shade and windbreak and a supportable microclimate for the other plants. And he was working there on really rich soils, from what I remember. But he was having trouble with the productions and he was realizing that if he wanted to continue producing in these systems, that he was never able to become independent of uh, external inputs so that he would have to keep adding some sort of uh, fertil fertilizer mm. in order to maintain productivity. And uh, it's what he wrote about in his text. I think he published in 1992, Breakthrough in Agriculture. He writes that that was his like main critique at himself at that point, that with this, uh, alley crop, with this complex alley cropping system, he still could not move away from external inputs and he still could not achieve that which he was looking for to work solely based on the mechanisms that we find in nature, in a natural ecosystem. Um, after six years of this work, he moved to Brazil where he bought his farm, which uh, maybe some of you guys listening to you know parts of the story. He um, bought this 500 hectare piece of land that was totally, utterly degraded. Um, it was originally called Fazenda Olhos d'Agua, which means as much as farm of the eyes of water which is a name given to farms in brazil where they say it's the birth point of water so it's places with a lot of dew 
a lot of rain and a lot of water springs. And so it's a, a watershed, you know, a very strong watershed. Um, but the previous owner had owned a sawmill, had cut down pretty much all of the native rainforest that was there, and then had uh, gone through this burn cycle agriculture where they would plant cassava, where they would plant uh, different uh, yeah, annual or biannual crops for smallholder subsistence farming. They had livestock and, you know, like these watershed areas, they are very sensitive to degradation, uh, especially areas with a lot of water springs. Once you start clogging up the creeks and you get erosion, like clogging up the creeks and then the water spring drying out as a result of loss of vegetation, you don't even know where the creek is anymore. Then you have this really bad dynamic of drought and uh, water logging because the water cannot actually leave when it needs to and because there is no more vegetation it dries out the second there's no rain um, and in the tropical soils we know that all these biological and also chemical processes just happen on such a more rapid and accelerated rate and so his soils when he bought the farm there was like parts where I think the majority had like pH around 4.2 but some parts, even 3.8, was like no trace of phosphorus or phosphates. There was like very little nitrogen. There was almost no potassium. There was toxic amounts of aluminium and also other elements and just toxic mm. quantities. And just nothing would grow. Like the grasses, I mean, this is like used to be a tropical rainforest with 50 meter tall trees and 2,600 millimeters of precipitation per square meter per year. The previous owner cut down everything. It started only raining 1,100 millimeters after mm. the removal of the forest. So the rainfall dropped by more than 50%. And uh, all the water springs dried out. All these chemical biological processes in the soil led to the fact that now not even grasses will grow taller than like 10 or 15 centimeters. And the uh, previous owner then decided to abandon the farm. And they called it Fazenda dos Fugidos da Terra Seca. So, the farm of the fugitives of the dry land. <laughs> wow. Who named it like that? Who decided the previous that? owner. <laughs> they <laughs> abandoned the land and they called it that. <laughs> well, so the name even carried the story of the of, and of that's degradation. The, and yeah. that's the name that it's registered at as until today. Uh, oh. Like, if you go to the notary and, like, officially Ernst Farm's name is called Fazenda... Dos fugidos da terra seca. So once again, for you guys listening in that don't speak Portuguese, it's farm of the fugitives or refugees of the dry land because they just had to abandon it because nothing more would grow, even the most tolerant crops. And so Ernst bought this farm. Everybody called him crazy in the region. They, would, they were saying like, yeah, nothing will ever grow there. You won't be able to even grow pineapple or cassava. Like, nothing of this grows. He got, like, certificates from universities that were saying that he would never be able to grow cacao on this farm because there's, just, like, such a low pH. Or, like, that he would never be able to grow it in an economically viable fashion because he would just have to put so much calcium and so much uh, other fertilizers in order to make the production uh, viable that it, he would not be able to reach a break-even point because of the price of, yeah, the cost of production in comparison to the price of the product. And so he um, 
on this farm he started developing really his techniques of syntropic farming which um you know he um had really the idea that he carried with him from Costa Rica that it should be possible to work on any soil on this planet, no matter how degraded it is, without using any external inputs and still achieve economically viable agricultural production and only using natural processes. So he started making lots of experiments on his farm. His idea was that Maybe even if he had to use a one-time fertilization, that in the long term he would be... Like, he did not want to fertilize more than one time. And so he, like, he planted 111 hectares of cacao within the first year. Uh, and I think it was like 300 hectares of forest or something like this. Um, and he, the cacao plantations, he divided into different experiments where in some he would apply the uh, recommended quantities of uh, conventional fertilizer, so like the package that the Green Revolution was offering. And then he was also in some of the um, um, blocks, he would put the recommended quantity of organic fertilizer, so same stuff, but from organic origin or accepted by organic agriculture, and then the third series of attempts, he was using nothing. I think it was just like this really like, maybe like 5% or 2% of the recommended quantity of chalk. And he was not using it on the whole area. But like, I remember him telling me that in some places he would even just use a teaspoon of chalk on the place where he would put a cacao seed. Mm. So that like when the seed would germinate, it would have like something to hold on to and to not immediately die but then it also did not obviously have the conditions to really develop and that it would have to wait for the other plants to solve the acidity of the soil and to raise the ph so have to wait for natural processes to occur in order to then be able to develop and so what happened as a result of these three lines of experiment was that the areas where uh, he put nothing the corn like grew like three centimeters tall and it withered the beans that he had planted same thing germinated died uh the like they just turned yellow they didn't even get to finish making their first true leaves and they were gone the uh, bananas no chance papaya no chance uh manioc like growing but like weak and um like that's like for the short cycle crops then in the field with the conventional fertilizer, he had like huge corn production, huge bean production, bananas developing super beautiful, papaya developing super beautiful. And uh, after three months, so like somewhere after the corn harvest, this huge plummet in productivity and like all the cacao trees died. Many of the other fruit trees he had seeded. So he plants everything by seed, right? Mm -hmm most of those trees all died. And those are the areas like the field where you and me worked. Mm -hmm. You know, that, that was like a forest that he had. He had then worked on it again afterwards, but um, it had no cacao trees because of this reason, because it was one of those fields where he had used uh, yeah, salt fertilizer or chemical fertilizer. And he just had no cacao trees there. It was just uh, other trees that had come up. 
and um, in the field of the organic fertilization it was pretty much the same thing just that it took a bit longer and the effect was less severe like maybe a bit less corn production and bean production a bit less of a spike in the beginning but also like a less extreme plummet in the end maybe not such a severe die off of like like all of the cacao trees like maybe let's say like five percent or eight percent survived but uh you know also like he was not able to establish his cacao trees like this in the field where he had done nothing within three years his cacao trees grew like 30 centimeters tall i think he said and so in the beginning it was very hard and it was there where he then started developing this technique which he also describes in this text breakthrough in agriculture um, which he calls selective weeding which is not really a weeding as such but it's more like a selective pruning and some plants he actually does weed but it's really just a few and so he was looking for the plants that were spontaneously coming up and then periodically he would go through all the fields and with his machete selectively cut out all the plants that were at the end of the flowering and so you know like in his theory when the plants um, reach this morphological ripeness when they finish flowering and they start maturing their seeds so going towards physiological ripeness they start already entering into a state of senescence that has an impact on all the other plants in the surroundings. And so he always, when there's a plant that enters into this kind of state, he always goes to prune it in order to either reset its life cycle, so it re-sprouts with renewed vigor. And by then, you know, you have to imagine that it's like waves, you know, like first the plant, it grows up and it reaches a certain point and it starts flowering. Then if you prune it, it already has a root system established. It already has its associated microbiology and all of these things. You prune it, it grows back stronger and it reaches a new height. So a new, a new higher wave is created. And this, you know, this pruning process, it's also something we learned in university, uh, is mostly apical pruning. So removing the top growth points of the plants has a very significant impact on the um, plant on a hormonal level. Um, so you basically shift the whole uh, hormone hormonal balance within the plant because in the top, in the tips of the plant, is where a certain hormone called auxin is produced. And that's really promoting this uh, apical growth with the central leader, uh, suppressing the side branches from growing too strongly and growing up. And it's actually kind of, you know, in that sense, limiting the speed of growth, you know. The second you remove that uh, on a tree, you know, you would uh, remove the top and then uh, proportionally prune back all the side branches so that you don't just epically prune the top like they do here in Portugal. They, you know, they just climb up a tree, they knock out the top and then they leave all the side branches and there's these poor trees then standing there. But, uh, you know, you climb up, you knock out the top, and then you knock out all the side branches proportionally so that the tree maintains the same shape, mm -hmm. same exact shape, before and after. It's just proportionally reduced. And uh, so all the branches are apically pruned. What happens is there's no more source of auxin, and there is two hormones produced in the root system, cytokinin and gibberellic acid, which are huge growth-enhancing hormones. Under the influence of these hormones, a plant 
will portray much higher cell division rate, much higher velocity of photosynthesis. More photosynthesis means more water being cycled or recycled. You know, in Ernst's theory, he doesn't really believe that all plants drink water from the soil, but that it's a cycle where they actually, with the dew, they create water and they, um, due to temperature differences, I mean, it also goes back to Victor Schauberger, which uh, if any of you listening are interested in Ernst's work, I highly suggest you to start studying Victor Schauberger. There are some really nice uh, works about his uh, work by a man called Callum Coates, and the book Living Energy is like Living Energies is really like the most all-encompassing uh, description of Victor Schauberger's work, which you know, like reading these books was uh, also really helping me understand where what Ernst was talking about because um, you know it's really just an in-depth, comprehensive understanding of how nature actually works, like not how modern science believe nature works not how f modern physicists believe that nature works but how nature and the cosmos actually works so you you see that there is like the understanding of ernst and and, and yours as well there's a big disparity between modern understanding of how plants and and natural systems work and how things actually work you see that there's a big difference uh yeah i mean for sure i mean the biggest one that surprises people all the time that come here the first one like i said is like don't these plants drink so much water because i have so many plants so close together and people are like well, how are you managing like aren't they competition ex like that's the first one like drinking water the second one competition like that just blows people out of the waters like what like you don't believe that plants compete with each other <laughs> because you know like i have thousands of plants here in my plant uh, in my farm uh, to give you guys an idea listening, I have about 70,000 trees planted on one and a half, no, 1.3 hectares. And so that gives me about seven trees per square meter. And, um, you know, I haven't planted the whole fields. It's all in rows. And sometimes on a space of like 10 square centimeters, there's like 10 trees growing out of it. And there's this one water dropper and I'm irrigating very little uh, for the climate in which I am here. And, um, you know, I always tell people, I was like, that have this doubt, I just tell them, I was like, all right, so I want you to go around my farm and show me an example where you see a plant suffering because of another one or like one plant competing with another one because you don't see that. You see the complete opposite. You see how they nurture each other, how they raise each other, how they improve the conditions for each other. And that is, you know, I always explain it like this. If you know how to work with plants, I think that's just really like the basis of this work is like really understanding how to work with plants, descending off of the pedestal, as Ernst always says. So like descending off of our throne of thinking that we're like the supreme being, the intelligent ones but to understand that we are part of this intelligence system that we don't overpose ourselves to the will of the plants but that we uh so to say tune in to their desires and to their needs and then from that perspective seek to optimize this whole system and giving each plant its correct conditions in comparison to all the other ones around it 
And the second that you understand and know how to work with plants in such a sense that, you know, through pruning, through selective weeding, through selective pruning, you can uh, optimize the shade conditions. The I actually don't believe in shade. I don't have shade in my farm. I have filtered sunlight, you know. There exists no shade here. It's just filtered sunlight. And so, like, I plant citrus trees, and people tell me, but do citrus trees grow in shade? I say, I don't know. I plant them in filtered sunlight. <laughs> so, you know, and I see a big difference in their health being in filtered sunlight in comparison to direct sunlight. Yes, yes. yes. And so, um, you know, um, the second you understand how to work with these plants together, um, and optimizing this process, there's no more conflicts. And the only way that you might be able to, like where I un, where I feel like man got this idea of competition from, is when you look at nature and when you look at a natural like occurrence of plants that might not be managed and it might not be maintained by a person with this understanding or by anybody at all. You know, it might just be let grown wildly. And so people then think, ah, oh, this is competition because this plant is like suffocating this one. But I actually just believe it's conflicts that arise out of mismanagement or no management. And also in that sense, you know, Ernst, he always says there's no competition. There's only co-definition uh, co so no competition but co-definition all the different plants they together co-codify or co-decide who is the most adapted the most strong like who is the genome like imagine there's a uh, hundred oak trees growing all together on the space that in the future one oak tree would grow in the beginning, you know, all of them are serving a function because they're occupying that area. You know, like one of the big ideas of centropic farming is that occupy the maximum of potential space from with photosynthesis in all stages of development of your plantation. So you want to always have the whole place full of photosynthesis. And in the beginning, you can allow yourself to have that many trees there making a deep taproot into the soil, working the soil, mobilizing microbiology, because the space just allows it. And they together then will co-decide who is the most adapted genotype to this exact location. And that one will be indicated by portraying more vigor, by portraying more strength, but sometimes it's really surprising. It's not even the plants that are growing fastest in the beginning that end up staying. And, you know, you just really have to be able to tune in and understand which plant um, is now meant to go and which plant is meant to stay, which is a very difficult concept to explain to people. And I think the only th way that I have somehow started learning how to relate to plants on this level is by having planted them myself and taking care of my own agroforestry system over a few years now, where you have this connection with the plant from the beginning, you know. And a lot of times, actually, the animals will come and take out the plants. So rodents or other animals, they come and take them out. Like the oak trees, if I cut them with my scissors, they will sprout back no matter what. So I cannot take them out. But the mice, they will go and cut the root mm -hmm. of the weaker ones. 
And that's very interesting. <laughs> so Ernsty, after three years, his cacao trees were still very small and he developed this technique of selective weeding and selective pruning, mm -hmm. where he was pruning the plants that were flowering. By five years, he started noticing a big difference because spontaneous trees and also trees that he had planted himself that were adapted to the conditions of the site had significantly developed and he could start pruning them. Then he started seeing a big shift in the dynamics of the place and the cacao trees started growing very fast. And then by eight years, he started having production. And these are now the orchards that 35, 36 years later are still highly productive and um, that are producing the cacao that he and him and his family are living from. In the beginning, uh, what he ended up using as an economic uh, production to pay off his farm and to pay the salaries of his workers and uh, pay for his livelihood was uh, bananas. He was dehydrating bananas. Now, I just wanted to put that... And nowadays he's producing, on average, about three times more cacao per hectare per year than the average Brazilian conventional farmer that uses the whole package of fungicides, herbicides fertilizers and so on and so forth and it's not just this it's when you've tasted his cacao oh no like it's something else isn't it? <laughs> um, to all of you guys listening dimitri and me we're sitting here right now both with a cup full of ernst cacao <laughs> and it just brings a very special uh yeah atmosphere tell us a bit more about this thing of of pruning and organic mm. matter which is so representative of syntropic agriculture and this is yeah. you know what you're saying is the next phase in which he went yeah. maybe explain a bit more what so that means. i mean what really brings the productivity into the system is as you said the pruning and it's you know always i was reading through my notes from when i was at Ernst farm the other day by coincidence i think it was actually before i knew that we would do this interview and i'd written down that a syntropic plantation works in six dimensions so it's a six-dimensional entity maybe now i would say it's seven anyways you have the first three dimensions which is space how plants are arranged in space this is uh, how the different plants grow above and below each other and next to each other so stratification layering is a very big uh, part of the syntropic agriculture approach where you really attempt to uh, fit each plant into its optimal position. Ernst and his son Tankrit, they um, studied the Brazilian rainforest in many different places of Brazil, and they came to the conclusion that there's 11 strata in a forest. So you have emergent, canopy to emergent, then canopy convex, canopy, canopy concave, medium to canopy, medium, no, medium to canopy to can, no, sorry, so medium to canopy, then you have medium, then medium to low, then low, and uh, then there's a herbaceous layer, and then the regeneration layer, which are all the trees that will make part of the next, like that are being raised underneath the forest. The fourth dimension that ties in with all of this is time, which, as I said, there's a regeneration layer, And, you know, like some plants, they live shorter, some plants, they live longer. You plant this whole spectrum of different species that, uh, like that are from different life cycles. 
And so that's the fourth dimension, is the time. The fifth dimension is the interaction between all these different species that exist within the plantation. So, uh, you know, like here on my farm, when I first started, I mean, it's very much research focused. So I also did this to understand what really works here on this land. But I was planting about 80 species per row together, which had all kinds of herbaceous and short cycle vegetable plants, but then also long lived trees. The sixth dimension is dynamic which is strongly driven by the human intervention into the ecosystem. And that's where the pruning comes in. The pruning, like our main objective in pruning is uh, to optimize the uh, natural processes occurring on the site, principally uh, photosynthesis and natural succession of species. So the natural succession of species in the beginning, you know, we uh, start by planting. Um, imagine you have um, different life cycles of different plants. The first life cycle would be your vegetable crops like radishes, melons, corn, beans, sweet potatoes uh, that grow together in this short life cycle. And uh, they sort of produce a macroorganism between each other they are the ones that start to create well they produce this macroorganism where each one of them is fulfilling a unique function in regards to the other ones and um, one of their functions that they are fulfilling is to as I said before cover the maximum amount of area with photosynthesis on immediate time frame but also through their metabolism, they are changing the um, qualities of the site um, climatically. So they're starting to uh, modulate the m m uh, microclimate. They are raising the humidity, lowering the temperature, but then also biologically and chemically. So they are starting to um, produce exudates through their roots that start feeding microbiology. This microbiology then in turn starts mobilizing different nutrients and, uh, well, trace minerals and all kinds of stuff naturally. And I think that this is really the only way that you can get this stuff back into the soil. Because, you know, like here where I live uh, in the topsoil, we're like, imagine lacking like pretty much all the trace elements you could imagine. There's like manganese, magnesium, uh, phosphate, calcium, boron, copper... Um, plus sulfur, plus a number of other things just completely missing from the topsoil. But, you know, the trees here, they can make roots that go 80 meters deep. And I believe that through these natural processes is how we can actually sustainably create this balance in the soil again, that putting rock dust or stuff like this is not a solution because they will oxidize and chemically bind up with other elements in the same process that the ones did that were originally here due to the degradation of the land. It's it like symptomatic. It's not actually solving the core problem, which is exactly. there's a lack of life in the soil, a lack of organic matter, a life, a lack, lack of, of cycling, shade. shade, yeah, all these things, that's this, this exactly. complex microorganism, which is an agroecological system. Exactly. Which is 
and this is what's fascinating with syntropic ag is that they're really you guys are really attempting here to to solve the issue from the force from what is actually wrong with the machine that we're trying to it's not a machine that's a bad metaphor but the system the organism and solve it and exactly. reactivate it and but so you guys are going when you guys are, are, are solving that issue you're going you're you're doing really deep biomimicry like from all the agricultural systems that i know syntropic mm. agriculture is the one that goes as close to nature which is the one that is most intimately biomimicking nature no for if you, sure if you and get closer as, as close to that right you know like that's why I found so much enthusiasm in working together with Ernst because he is just like, you know, it's it feels so true, so profoundly true what he's working on and what he is doing. And it has like such a deep meaning uh, to, you know, our planet. In my point of view, you know, it really affected me very deeply on a soul level. And, um, you know, it obvious like so to continue that conversation you know like you then have this first macroorganism of short life cycle plants that kind of starts altering the conditions of the site of intervention and then later on like they through through their metabolism and through the alterations which they cause on the site of intervention they produce the conditions for the plants of the next life cycle so the next macroorganism to successfully be able to establish without the work of these we don't call them pioneer plants we don't call them biomass plants because calling them pioneer plants would mean that they're like something external or something like of lesser value you know they are not external they all make part of the same system they just are part of a different life cycle they're not pioneering anything you know it's like uh you know, when there's an embryo being created inside the mother's womb, there's no, the stem cells are not pioneer cells. They're stem cells. That's what everything else builds up from, you know. There is no pioneers in that sense. They all make part of the same system at just at different stages. And then the, uh, also no biomass plants. So we have no plant in the system that we intentionally integrate in order to produce biomass. We look for plants that are able to vigorously grow under the conditions of the site and are able to react well to strong pruning. But that is not with the objective to create biomass. I mean, it's the biomass production is like a sub-product. And I think that's where like a lot of people get earnest wrong because you know he never goes to prune a tree with the intention to bring down organic material. He prunes the trees in order to optimize them in their crown shape, in their like in the amount of filtered sunlight that they make or the amount of sun filtration that they create, in order to optimize that with all the other plants that exist around it, you know? And he really looks at it from this perspective. And what's interesting is the second you start doing it like this, you will always have the perfect amount of organic material to cover the soil completely. Like, you won't have too much, you won't have too little. If you, like, invest it well, you'll be able to cover 100% of the area with, like, in his farm, like, 3 to 5 centimeter layer of fresh organic material without, like, over-pruning the plants. Just by pruning them the right amount that is necessary for the optimization of the system. And, um, 
so you know like then the and the pruning in like let me so you have these different life cycles and how they succeed each other is how we build up this forest and how one life cycle transitions into the next is a large part of what we call dynamics of the ecosystem and um to fortify these dynamics we use techniques such as pruning and the pruning has uh, one very strong impact which is as i was mentioning earlier the reset of growth cycles of plants and the reinvigoration of plants so bringing plants to a higher level than they would go without pruning and this uh, in ernst theory as all plants are connected via mycorrhiza when one plant in the system or two plants in the system are experiencing this state of accelerated and invigorated growth due to pruning and when they are cycling all the cytokinin and gibberellic acid that they actually transmit this through the mycorrhiza to other plants and i've actively seen this happen on his farm where I was pruning uh, elephant grass, which I planted together with my corn and my beans and my young trees. I prune it and my cacao trees are like 10 centimeters tall and have these tiny little leaves. The second I prune it, a week later, the cacao trees have like 30 centimeter long leaves all of a sudden. They're like drooping down on the floor and they've like... They were like stopped before they were not growing and i prune the elephant grass and the cacao trees just make this huge push making really big leaves and you see it in ernst forest you know the um in the region a normal cacao tree makes like leaves that are like 20 to 30 centimeters long in his forest i remember him coming up to us with like leaves that were 60 or 70 centimeters big and so it makes a very big difference this and that's without any fertilizers nothing he has it's never just... used anything never on most of his active plantations, you know. Most of the places where he actually harvests cacao, where he is able to produce, he never fertilized. Mm. And those are his best plantations. Very interesting. Maybe you tell us a bit more about, because you referred a few times to your farm and where mm -hmm. you're working here in Portugal. Maybe you can tell us a bit about how you, how, you know, you're applying what you learned with Ernst and and how all this all this incredible journey you've just explained to us how that led to Quinta das Abelias and okay. uh, and your story kind of in Portugal I still feel like I haven't like we've talked a lot about centropic farming but I still don't feel like I've actually given like a real like definition of what it is so um I think the number one thing to um centropic farming is to mimic the natural ecosystem of the site of intervention in its structure, function, and dynamic as closely as possible. So structure is referring to the stratification, the dynamic to the different life cycles, the dynamic between the different seasons, but then also the dynamic that exists between when the plantation is pruned and when it's not pruned. So like light and shade or light and filtered sunlight amounts of sunlight in the plantation um, and then function refers to anything from nutrient cycling to um, water cycling and so on and so forth and um, 
the next point is um, that the plantations should work without any external inputs, that the biggest external input that we use is our knowledge of sociology of plants, so how plants behave towards each other and with each other, and how to optimize ecological processes. As well, another external input is the planting material, in some cases. We, like Ernst, he uses almost exclusively uh, seeds. He, I've ne- like While I was in his farm, I never planted a single plant. There's always seeds directly in the ground. Even, I mean, in his farm, even tomatoes, I was planting directly on the spot. I wasn't making a nursery for anything. And um, so, you know, like that's a big part of the thing that ideally, if you adhere to really what centropic farming is, you don't use any seed uh, seedlings or uh, grafted plants. The third part is that the plantations are able to mobilize and recycle. So mobilize and transform and then recycle their own uh, nutrient and water necessities. And a big part is also that the plantation should be economically viable and profitable but even more importantly, that it is profitable in a um, sense of natural capital or, as Ernst calls it, the quali- quantity and quality of consolidated life on the site so that it has a significant increase in quantity and quality of consolidated life on the site, but that it also positively contributes in the same sense to the macroorganism planet Earth as a whole. So, you know, like here, for example, on my farm, I'm having a positive impact on the system, on the site, by bringing straw from a neighbor. I'm enriching, I'm giving conditions for life to work here by bringing in this mulch. It's not completely aligned with the centropic principles because um, by doing this, I might not be having entirely positive benefit to the macroorganism planet Earth as a whole. By taking nutrients and organic matter from another site. Exactly, because you're having a negative impact on another site in order to enrich your own site. Okay. Uh, another aspect is that we don't consider anything to be a pest or a disease. All of the animals, all of the bugs, all of these uh, different uh, interveners and cohabitants of our forest are endobionts of the forest, just as ourselves and that they make part of the department or the agency of um, optimization of life processes. So they will only start to intervene when we have not managed to put a plant in its right context, in the right conditions. And you see this in Ernst Farm all the time. And here in my own farm, I also, I've never had any animal or bug or critter intervene with my crops where I could not reason or figure out through reason why it had come why did because it usually comes and if you're open to it it will tell you immediately what you did wrong and it's you know they are lesson givers and they are um so say teachers for us to be able to optimize or better understand nature and the ecosystem and how to better intervene 
with our plantations and how to better cultivate our tree crops. Instead of looking at them as something evil that's coming to punish us, we could look at them as teachers and how to better treat our plants. There's um, one more element that uh, is about centropic farming that right now I'm not coming up with, so we'll skip that. And um, yeah, so here in my farm, after having lived in Ernst Farm for over one year, I did an internship here in Portugal on the agricultural estate at that do Freixo do Meio, which at the time was working together with Ernst to install different agroforestry fields around the estate. Um, some more intensively managed, closer to the main production sites, to the living areas, some more extensive areas in uh, large fields where they were trying to reforest a 100 hectare big, really degraded field. And... Um, I came to do an internship here for my university and to kind of help prepare things for a workshop that Ernst was going to give here. And um, during this time, you know, I just really fell in love with the ecosystem, with the area. I always felt like I wanted to work and live in Europe, that I didn't want to go to Brazil, mostly for the reason that I... You know, there was already so much going on there and I felt like the, the whole knowledge of Ernst that there was very little being like very like nobody was strictly following his ideas really here in Europe. You know, like there's people applying techniques and principles of centropic farming in some cases, but I really wanted to apply as much of it as I could and really do things as I'd seen on his farm, uh, which <laughs> I'll get to in a minute is, uh, you know, I am not, uh, I have not entirely managed to live up to that standard either. Um, I think it's good to be honest about that. I don't consider what I do here really centropic farming, if I would look at it from a puristic standpoint, you know, because uh, a number of the principles that I had uh, mentioned earlier are just not fulfilled. You know, um, the first one is that as I said, I do use external inputs like straw or organic material that I bring in from neighbors. Most of it, I would say 95% of all the organic material I bring into the farm are actually trash and byproducts of different production chains from neighbors. Like, for example, I bring in a lot of um, rotten wood from one uh, a firewood processing company here close by. So when they split up the firewood, all these little bits of wood fall off and the bark and the mosses. And it just creates this marvelous black soil because it just sits there forever. And then there's all these little pieces of wood that are all like covered in fungi and everything. And I bring that in because as a supplement to my soil, and there's a neighbor that has a lot of, he has a horse stable and uh, nobody in the area, in the region here wants to use his horse manure because he mixes it with uh, wood chips. And people here are used to plowing the manure under and leaving the soil uncovered. And obviously you shouldn't plow under uh, manure like this. It will do bad for your soil because it's very rich in carbon and much less rich in nitrogen and is not decomposed. And so I use this a lot because it comes very cheap and um, is, very, is my cheapest way of covering the soil with organic material. And then the other product that I do use is uh, hay, 
from a neighbor. He has, um, yeah, I think he has about two or 300 cows and he has uh, this extensive grazing operation. And every year they make a large number of hay bales. And um, he has had uh, last year and this year a lot of bales that were rotten because they'd been exposed to the weather. Um, and he sells them to me for very cheap. And uh, for me, it's perfect because um, I just shred them up with the mulcher um, that goes behind the tractor. And then it's kind of like shredded hay. The seeds are already not viable anymore because the hay is really old and it's been exposed to the weather. And so in this anaerobic decomposition that occurs inside the bale, the seeds become inviable. I have no more uh, weeds coming from the hay. And it's much cheaper than if I buy fresh hay or straw. Mm. Um, and I do also use a lot of seedlings uh, here in my farm. And I do use, uh, in limited quantities, irrigation. So these are like, you know, the main elements where I would say that uh, I'm not like entirely centropic. And then also I'm... So just a question, why are you doing it this way in, in that case? If it's not purely centropic... What are the uh -huh. reasons that are pushing you towards using these these inputs? Uh, the straw and the stuff. The irrigation as well. Just um, understand what's the you know, strategy behind that. There's a different number of reasons. Uh, first of all, you know, I'm doing a research farm here. And, um, you know, I have mostly like research objectives. And for me, it's also, you know, uh, as this is the nature of the farm, Uh, the economic model behind it for the past two and a half years has been mostly been relying on funding. And, you know, I, I myself, working so hard for planting all these agroforestry systems, I want to see things develop and I want myself to see myself here inside a forest uh, within a reasonable time span. And also, I want to show some kind of results to my funders. And uh, if you would look back at the list of materials that I told you that I use, there's nothing in there that is like a fast decomposing, so to say, organic fertilizer. It's all like, imagine like whole grain cereals for the soil, you know, it's like whole grain food, it's uh, integrale. <laughs> <laughs> And so, you know, um, when you have, in centropic farming, we also don't believe in uh, decomposition or uh, as people would call it, compost. Uh, we don't generally don't. I mean, there's I don't, uh, you know, believe anymore in these dogmas. I used to be like very strict about what I wanted to do or not want to do. You know, I work with the resources I have available to me and uh, compost has this uh, funny thing that it's a lot of organic material that plants work very hard to complexify all this solar and cosmic energy into their plant structure uh, into their like the plant fibers uh, making all these sugars and these uh, yeah this uh, beautiful magnificent being and if we then take that and put that into a compost which is a exothermic reaction so it heats up and inside this heating up process, a lot of these energies are actually being sent back out into the universe. So it's an entropic reaction in the end. 
And uh, what we usually do is we apply any kind of organic material as fresh as possible directly to the place where we plant it at the feet of our plants and let that process occur on site. And there are specific ways in which we arrange the organic material so that it doesn't get hot. And that leads to the fact that you actually have a reaction that uh, cools down the place. So um, here on my farm, you know, last year we had this weather station running and you could see that uh, while in the control fields, the soil temperature 10 centimeters below soil level was 38 degrees at the peak of the day. Here my farm was only 21. And you see that's a very big difference for a plant root system, for the microbiology, for the fungi, for the bacteria in this kind of really harsh climate where temperatures go 42, 44 degrees and the like drought period is four to five months and the rains are getting more and more unpredictable. You, <laughs> you can't tell us this and not tell us how you layer the organic matter. Well, you have to... <laughs> it's kind of like... Um, Imagine like those uh, windrows that the tractors make when they pile up the hay. So it has like one pile where it's like a pile that's high on the center and then it falls off to the sides. Imagine if you would do two of those right next to each other. So you'd have two piles that are high on top and then fall off towards the sides. And just where those two piles meet, where the organic material is like, let's say like only five or 10 centimeters thick, and then on the outsides, you know, you have like the 30, 40 centimeter thick organic material in the center is where you have the plants. And so what happens is that it actually draws humidity and cold air. It creates this, um, how's it called? Um, uh, a thermal current that brings the fresher air and the um, humidity towards the center, towards the plant. And... Um, yeah, so I don't I didn't want to get into explaining it because I think it's hard to visualize without like a physical example. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, but all, all of these techniques that you're talking about they require Or imagine like if you uh if you just plant a, a single tree or like a group of trees. Um one of the things you know we don't call make we don't plant a tree in a hole in centropic farming like Ernst is always very explicit about the fact that uh, a hole is for the people <laughs> and that a nest is for the trees so it's a place of creation a place of birth a cradle so to say and um, with this parable made uh, when you have one of these nests the best way to organize the organic material around it is exactly in the shape of a bird's nest so this kind of circle that's high on the outside and then at the center where the trees are, maybe three to five centimeters thick. So just because of the shape of the way it's organized, you're uh -huh. seeing like a big impact of course. on temperatures of as course. compared to just layering mulch kind of in whichever way. Yeah, because, you know, if you make this single pile with all the mulch organized just in one thing, if you would plant the trees on the center of that, first of all, their trunks would rot away. Yeah, for sure. Second you are creating a heat-driven reaction, which sends energy back to the universe. We, in centropic farming, you know, we attempt to use the natural capital given to us to trigger tr 
transformative processes that lead to a growth in capital on the site and improvement of life conditions for all consolidated beings on that site. So, you know, that's why I said we don't believe in decomposition or in compost because when we apply these fresh uh, whole organic materials to the soil, they are not decomposed, but they are being transformed into higher life forms, which is a chain reaction of mm. one life form eating the other one, eating the other one, eating the other one. And that is leading to the fact of improving and raising the life conditions on that place so that more demanding trees or plants can grow. So uh, here in my project, um, I started working here almost three years ago. Um, it's based in uh, this agricultural estate at Adlufresh Lumeu, where um, they allowed me the privilege to purchase a parcel of their property, or Alfredo, uh, the owner of the land. He uh, allowed me the privilege to purchase a part of his lands, a part of his inheritance, um, in order to realize my dream, in order to realize my project of living here, of cultivating this land and reforesting it. And so I started with principally three objectives. You know, uh, when I came back from Ernst Farm, uh, I told you this the other day, you know, I was looking to uh, deepen my knowledge about plants, about agriculture. And so I bought a lot of books about food forests, about agroforestry, about organic agriculture, all this kind of stuff. And I started reading it. I'm like, hey, like, all of this stuff does not actually align with that what Ernst was telling me. Like, they're talking about competition, they're talking about, you know, uh, all these kind of things. And I don't feel that it, this is actually, it's all very honorable work. And I don't want to say it's not valuable, it's very valuable. But, you know, I was, I wanted to tune in to this truth that I felt from Ernst, this deep understanding of how nature actually works, you know? And so instead of studying, continuing to study agriculture, I bought like all kinds of books about philosophy. And if you look at my library now, like most of it's like Cicero, Marcus Aurelius, Plato, uh, all kinds of stuff from ancient Egypt. <laughs> and, you know, that's really what started fascinating me. And, um, one of the big things that started fascinating me about these texts is the way that they describe the Mediterranean ecosystem that they found when they had first come here. So in like the ancient Greek texts, you know, there's like the example of uh, Critias and Timaeus from Plato, where he, Plato is describing how Athens looked 12,000 years ago based on current like time counting it was like a historical account that he had uh, received from Egyptian priest and um so uh wow. i mean it's a story where they also it's a bit of a controversial story because it's also the same text where they describe Atlantis okay, <laughs> so okay. they uh it's like pretty much uh there's this guy Solon um who had later on been like a dictator that the uh state of Greece voluntarily elected because they believed he was the only one that could save the state of calamity that was occurring in Greece. Um, he was a very wise man and he had studied in Egypt and he was getting in this discussion with the ancient Egyptian priest about 
how the Greeks knew everything about history. And he starts relating like how, forget the name of the guy. Um, what was the uh, name of the was son of Apollo? And he uh, asked his father, Apollo, to let him, or Helios, uh, to um, drive the sun chariot. And so when he got on the sun chariot, he couldn't drive it. And he got off course and he crashed it and it burned the face of the earth. And that was one of the moments. According And so the uh, Solon, he starts relating these stories to the priest. And then the priest goes, yes, you tell these stories very good. And also the story of the flood, you know, this very good. And your, pe your people are very honorable because you still remember these events. But here in Egypt, we have never suffered from fire that erased our knowledge because we are living in the desert. And we have never suffered from flood that erased our civilization and our knowledge because there's no rain here. And we still remember that there was not just one fire or one flood, but that there was many other ones before. And so he starts telling about how there was a civilization living in Athens 10,000 years before Plato lived. And he is describing the ecosystem and the water springs and all this stuff that was there. So, I mean, like... It's like for modern historians, it's a bit of a, a dubious story, but you know, it just fascinated me like how they described the Mediterranean ecosystem. And there's much more uh, explicit examples of where they actually describe how their ecosystem looked like. And then we also obviously have the, um, the pollen evidence, you know, from the depths of the lakes and other uh, places where the pollen just accumulated that show us that these were very diverse. Uh, deciduous forests i've read research on the pollen it's mm -hmm. called the name of it is this type of uh work do you remember what they call it um it's crazy yeah and they can go back from the studies i was seeing they went back up to eight thousand years ago mm -hmm. and the and they've connected the pollen um findings with the archaeological findings yeah and, and you can see exactly where the man cut down the forest exactly <laughs> and they aligned it with so there was the arrival of dust of uh, of fire different layers and the changes in wow. in 50 to 100 years of the ecosystem and i can't talk about the details now mm. but what i can say is that there's been some radical and clearly anthropogenic changes of the ecosystem yeah. of a civilization that we would have we would say oh no it's small not many you know they didn't have chainsaws they didn't have machines but they had radical impact uh, they were the much landscape. stronger than us you know mm. like they were like our people nowadays like you know we're like both of us were like men at almost the peak of our like livelihoods. Like if you would compare us to people from those times or even people from 150 years ago, we're weak, you know, mm. like we don't even know how to like, you know, these guys, they were like really like strong and built and, you know, like they knew how to cut down a tree. <laughs> even if they didn't have a chainsaw. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And anyway, so, you know, like, number one, these texts, they really inspired me and it made a big part of why I wanted to move to the Mediterranean uh, climate. And number one objective behind this project then obviously came to be to reestablish a functioning Mediterranean forest. Because coming from this super inspiring uh, example that Ernst gave to the world, where he has, like, rehabilitated the super destroyed land and nowadays 
like it was the, like based on the index that they have there by a scientific institute called Ibama in Brazil. It was the most degraded land in the large region. Nowadays, it's the most biodiverse, most rich in photosynthesis, most healthy biome, his farm, in the whole Atlantic rainforest region, which is a million three hundred thousand square kilometers. They've done studies on the biodiversity there. I mean, he has many species there that are listed as extinct. I was shocked when I went to his farm. <laughs> it's crazy. Based on he the, has like, the, the biggest. Birds I saw. He has the biggest collection of genotypes of cacao probably in the whole world. He has collected all kinds of indigenous cacao varieties from all over South America and Middle America. Yeah, and there's like 500 genotypes of cacao that he has. He's, al- he's also brought trees there from the Amazon, from Central Everywhere. America, from. He's, it's like it's a crazy mix of edible species. No, for sure. Like it's it, in Asia, everywhere. Yeah, yeah. That's fascinating. And so, you know, like coming from this super inspiring example, I just, I remember like, you know, when I realized that I would have to leave Ernst Farm, I started having nightmares about going back to the city because I really didn't want to leave nature and the natural environment that I was in. And I approached Ernst and I was like, Ernst, you know, I'm getting really worried. I don't know if I want to leave. I don't know if I'll ever feel good again living in a city. He said, Mark, that's okay. Just know that now is the time where you have to leave. But if I was you at your age, and if I had seen and learned what you learned and saw here, I would leave with all the certainty inside of me and all the... um, was it called determination to do the same thing somewhere else in the world? And he like spoke that into my soul and it like shifted my perspective immediately because before I was like worried about returning to Europe and all of a sudden I was like super excited. I was like, let's go. I want to start planting forests in Europe, you know? <laughs> so, um, you know, I really like, it's like, uh, so to say like, I feel like, we inherited this landscape as it is now and to me it's just like in respect to all our ancestors i am planting these forests and i want to make a mediterranean ecosystem that works again and you know like what was very special experience to me uh this year i had the honor i had a client that hired me for a consultancy job in greece and i got to plant uh, agroforestry about 500 meters from this huge palace that's made out of boulders that must weigh like 80 tons or more, which apparently was a palace that Hercules built to live in. So that was like the place where Hercules lived, which is like one of my favorite figures from the Greek myths. And I planted agroforestry 500 meters from there. And like you just dig in the soil, it's like full of ceramics. It's insane. And you know, like it's just really like, in honor of this heritage and in honor of this beautiful landscape, you know, I want to work on these lands and plant these forests and bring these ecosystems to work again. Uh, second objective is to create like a oasis and hotspot and a place of prolonged well-being for all kinds of pollinating insects and uh, all kinds of seed dispersing animals and also other animals that fulfill other functions in the ecosystem, of course including humans. (laughs) So it's not a natural reserve, but it's a place of permanent inclusion of the human, which is another uh, thing that Ernst always talks about. Um, And so the third objective is to apply 
as much as I can the principles and techniques of syntropic farming here in the Mediterranean climate and act kind of like as a learning spot and a hotspot for knowledge creation and knowledge sharing uh, around this topic. And um, yeah. We're going to be sharing some, some pictures of, okay. of your farm to everybody. To uh, conclude, there's by now four different fields that I've planted. Each one of them is between 3,000 to 4,500 square meters big. In total, they're like 1,300, no, 13,000 square meters, so 1.3 hectares. And uh, on this area, I've planted uh, estimated about 70,000 trees, most of them by seed directly, a lot of them also uh, now in more recent years uh, in like this planting season and the one before by uh, nursery seedlings and um, yeah it's and then it has all the fruit trees in it as well my farm is mainly focused on citrus 21 varieties of citrus I have uh, olives I have figs grapes walnuts and did I say grapes already no peaches, peaches. that's the sixth one so these six um, and uh, one of the four fields is also done completely without irrigation. The other three, they do receive some irrigation, but it's very limited. Very nice. Very I think nice. that gives like a very broad explanation of what's here in the ground. I think that this whole story has been, of course, there's, there's so much to it, and you've been very skilled at telling us this whole adventure that you've been through. And one more thing that I want to clarify is um, that this project has the objective for me to be able to continue personally developing as well. So it's not just like a learning center for other people, but also a learning place for myself. I did not just want to go out in the world and start being a consultant or whatever or working for other people. I really wanted to do things on my own property and get experience in this ecosystem before sharing any knowledge. And... Uh, that is because I'm not an expert in centropic farming, as you had introduced me in the beginning. <laughs> I'm a student, and uh, you know I think that's a big part about the philosophy of centropic farming is that you never consider yourself a master, you never consider yourself an expert. You are an eternal student to Mother Nature. I just want to finish off thanking you so much for coming on the show. It's mm -hmm. been uh, you know long overdue. And, um, I think it came at exactly the right moment. Okay, fantastic. <laughs> and we're going to have another round together. And um, thank you so much. It's been thank you really as well. enjoyable. And thank you to all the listeners that uh, listened with so much interest until the end. Phenomenal. We look forward to hearing you, uh, having you around again. That's awesome. We'll have all the links and everything on the, on the, the notes below the episode for you to be able to find out more about Mark and his project. And uh, see you next time. Thank you so much. Thank you.